From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today... And as Reverend Warnock told me, uh, my grandmother doesn't need a eulogy. Her life was a sermon. After a service filled with tributes, laughter, and tears in Atlanta yesterday, Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest in the family burial ground after a final service at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains. Former State Representative Calvin Smyrie joins us with memories of the Carters. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. The special redistricting session of the General Assembly is getting underway right now at the state capitol. Will legislators draw maps that are deemed compliant with the federal judge's directive to boost representation for black voters? Plus, a look at Donald Trump's defense in the Fulton County conspiracy case. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, you're up there in Washington. I'm down here in Atlanta. When I went out to my car this morning... The temperature here was 29 degrees. I don't think it's a whole lot warmer where you are today either. That's about the temperature here. I haven't yet ventured out of my house yet, but I will shortly, and I'm going to be using my heavy winter coat. I don't know what the temperature is down in Plains today, um, but I suppose it's probably fairly chilly, and it's there that Mrs. Carter will be laid to her final rest in a garden on the uh, family property uh, at the house in Plains after a private service at Maranatha Baptist Church. It's been a really remarkable three days of remembrances of Mrs. Carter, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but just your general thoughts. Yeah, I think, of course, it's fitting. It's part of a long-term vision for both Mrs. Carter and President Carter, that their home and their burial place eventually become a national park where anyone will be able to visit them and pay their respects and, quite frankly, see how they lived for most of their life. Um, Their home will become a museum eventually. But it's to me, it's just remarkable to think that for right now, this is the home where President Carter still lives. For right now, this burial will be private. It will not be open to the public. And I wonder how they're going to keep that secure, quite frankly, in the weeks and months and years to come before it becomes an official national park, because there are going to be so many people curious now. Well, I think most of us um, over these past three days, at least certainly speaking for myself, I've learned even more than I ever knew before about just what a powerful force, what a gracious person Rosalind Carter has been in the life of her husband. And um, so I think uh, I'm very grateful that um, we've had these three days to remember her life. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.
Tia, so glad that you're here today because I know you said uh, before we went on the air that you and your mom watched the service um, at Glen Memorial Church yesterday for Rosalind Carter. It was, it could not have been a more beautiful and fitting farewell here in Atlanta than what happened yesterday. Yeah, it truly was a moving service. And um, for those who maybe haven't heard me say this before, I use a streaming cable um, kind of package. So my channels, even here in Washington, are set to local Atlanta TV (laughs) to help me keep connected. And so we watched the service on one of the local, um, uh, what local affiliates, and it really allowed us to get that, that flavor. Um, it was interesting watching it with my mom because she was like, well, who is that? Who is sitting right Mm -hmm. here? And who is sitting right there? And we were able to talk through all the dignitaries who were there, which was just showed, um, not just the importance of a former first lady, her position, but the connections the Carter had made. Um, and it just uh, the, the hearing from their children and grandchildren, those personal touches, it really was a moving ceremony. It um, Every single moment of that service was planned by Rosalind Carter herself. She picked the music. She picked the performances, the people she wanted to perform the music. Tricia Yearwood and Garth Brooks were good friends of the Carter family, and that's why they were there, and she was the one who put together the guest list, which, of course, included every former uh, living first lady of the United States. But I thought, from I think many of us thought that there were so many wonderful moments, but one of the most moving was, was um, her daughter, Amy Carter, who read that remarkable letter that Jimmy Carter sent to Rosalind 75 years ago while he was in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I return to discover just how wonderful you are. While I'm away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. That says everything about the relationship that the two of them had. It's really extraordinary. Um Someone who got to know the Carters very well early on in the political career of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, because she was, we know now, a partner in everything he did in politics, was a former state representative, Calvin Smyrie. Calvin Smyrie is now a representative of the United States to the 78th United Nations General Assembly, but Calvin joins us now from Nashville. Calvin you started your tenure in the Georgia General Assembly in 1974 when Jimmy Carter was governor. And as we all know, you were the longest serving member of the state General Assembly, serving for a period of almost 50 years. But first of all, thank you so much for being with us today, Calvin. It's an honor for me to be with you all. And I just want to tell you and Tia and all the other members of your team uh, Greg and, and Patricia and all those that work with you all uh, and your support staff, how wonderful this program has been. I've been meaning to call you all and text you all, and uh, it's just um, an enlightenment. I listen in sometime live uh, in New York, 
on 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 uh, through the internet and but but uh keep doing what you're doing and i'm, I'm honored and delighted to be with you all this morning oh calvin thank that is such much. a love thank you so yes, much thank you so calvin okay 1974 1975 jimmy carter's governor and you were up there at the capitol and you start to get to know the carters and i'm curious what you remember about your impressions particularly of Rosalind Carter, who, of course, today will be laid to rest after a private service at Maranatha Baptist Church, their longtime spiritual home in Plains. What what are your early memories of what Rosalind Carter was like in relation to her husband and in relation to the issues that were important to her even back then? Well, let me let me say this. Uh, you know, I was elected in 74 and served in 75. And Carter at that time uh, was president, was running. Governor Carter was running for president uh, of the United States. And um, I'll never forget when I got to Atlanta, and I met uh, Ben Brown, the late Ben Brown, and, and the late Bobby Hill, two uh, former state legislators. And Ben Brown was very, very close to uh, uh, President, I mean, to Governor Carter, and uh, he introduced us, and that started a, a long relationship. And uh, Finally met uh, Rosalind, and uh, I tell you, if, if, if there's a definition of gracious, uh, that, that's Rosalind Carter. She was a she's a very gracious lady. Uh, she was a remarkable person, and uh, and uh, she just was a, a individual that uh, loved people. She was very amicable, very likable, and what an affectionate smile she had. So. I got to know them early on uh, during the campaign and uh, ultimately uh, him becoming uh, president of the United States. And, of course, she's becoming the first lady of the United States. And and uh, I saw her uh, doing that process and saw her change the role of, of the first lady of the United States. So it's been a, it, she just lived a marvelous life. She lived a legacy of a, 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 a she has a tremendous legacy that she left. And uh, and I'm just honored to, to be uh, with you all today to, to, to speak about her life and her legacy. Tia? Yeah, th- th- thank you so much for joining us, Representative Smiry. So the fact that you go so far back is also a testament to your longevity in Georgia politics. But tell us, you hail from Albany. Um, so Columbus. you're from the, the Carters. Columbus. And, I'm sorry? Columbus. Columbus, Columbus, I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, Columbus, um, South Georgia, uh, Southwest Georgia. Um, yeah. Tell us more about what the Carter means, Carters mean for, you know, the rural Southwest Georgia, all those folks down there and feeling like they're, you know, hometown folks down there. Well, Tia, I tell you, the first time I visited Plains, I, you know, and, and and that's the amazement of it. It's just absolutely astonishing and amazement if you look back and reflect back, and 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 think about uh, Jimmy Carter from uh, uh, rural Georgia, from a place called uh, Plains, Georgia, and and putting that on the on the map of the United States of America. It's a phenomenal story, and uh, and 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 more phenomenal is that they maintain those roots there in, in their hometown. Of Carter, I mean, of a place Georgia, Georgia, and 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 to see that and to hear that, it, it it's it's just remarkable uh, 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 development of of events 
you know, a gentleman from Plains, Georgia, becoming president of the United States of America, and Rosalind Carter becoming the first lady. So that, that's, I think that the underlying part of the story is they maintain their roots there. They maintain their residency there. They maintain their home there. And, uh, and to me, that's a phenomenal story that, that although they became global and both uh, lived a humanitarian life, uh, but at the same time, they, they always went back to their hometown of Plains, Georgia. And to me, that's, that's a remarkable story. And Rep. Smiry, I also wanted to ask you, as you observe these final remembrances of Rosalind Carter, as we mentioned, she'll be buried in a private ceremony today, private funeral today. But as you've just observed the celebration of her life, what have been some of your thoughts in the way she chose to be remembered, the way others are choosing to remember her? I think it's, it's, it's so appropriate. I, I I, I have, of course, more interaction with with, 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 with President Carter, but I do remember uh, uh, back some time ago when she uh, started the the caretakers, the institute, the uh, Carter Institute and Education for Caregivers, and uh, and how she supported and strengthened the caregivers uh, in in our state, and how she dealt with the mental health issue. Uh, illness and put it on the forefront of policy issues uh, in its rightful place. And uh, if you recall, uh, you know, we just started uh, putting uh, mental health back on top of the agenda. So she was before her time. Uh, she was global, a global humanitarian. And uh, and I think that that's, that, that's, that, that's going to be part of her legacy. That's what she's going to be remembered for. Kelvin, I do and think I tell you, the service, the service was, the service was so, so great. And I agree with, uh, with, uh, with, um, with, uh, Bill, I, I had three moments, uh, the, 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 listening to the memorial service. One was Amy Carter in the letter that, that, that made me pause and, and made me swallow a little bit. And then I get emotional about it right now. And then Jason Carter, Remark and his tribute to his grandmother was just—I mean, the way he—he—he he, he, he was lighthearted. He—he—he was—he was—he was just—just was, was just so feeling, and and to see, you know, I lost a grandmother and a mother, so to see him stand there and to do that, it was—it was just an awesome retreat, a tribute to his grandmother, and I just loved it when he introduced all the first ladies. And then say, we also welcome your lovely husband. <laughs> I thought Jason Carter was absolutely wonderful yesterday. I think we all could agree on that. He And one of the great moments was when uh, he said his grandmother had much in common with so many other Southern grandmothers. Every recipe she made had mayonnaise in it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. she always sent them birthday cards with $20 in the card. That was just a lovely tribute. Uh, Calvin, oh, I want you to Chip, listen. And Chip, and Chip, and Chip Carter Chip. did. He did a great job as well. And and the pastor, Tony alone, uh, uh, I tell you, the ending, the way he paid tribute to the service of the Secret Service members, to me, that was, that was very touching and how he closed it out. So. Cal- Calvin, we asked our listeners to uh, call us if they had uh, reflections on the life of Mrs. Carter that they wanted to share with our audience. And I want to play one of them and then uh, give you a chance to uh, reflect on it along with Tia. Marvin in East Point uh, called us and said this. Hi. The one thing that I would remember most about Miss Carter is 
she had an angelic smile. Her smile could tame a tiger. So I say today for all of us all around the world, let's all smile for First Lady Carter today. Thank you. You know, Tia, that's particularly appropriate today when we know that Mrs. Carter will be laid to rest in the family burial garden, ground and garden at their home in Plains. Yeah, not just smile, but also remember, I think it's been a great touch um, that butterflies have become kind of a symbol of First Lady Carter. And um, so maybe if you see a butterfly, I know it's kind of cold, there might not be many <laughs> butterflies out right now, but to always remember that the butterflies, whether real butterflies or some clothing or a pin, that's just a symbol of her that we can always kind of keep with us. Calvin, one last thing uh, before we let you go. Um, you, you mentioned it um, in, in passing. Uh, Mrs. Carter, of course, mental health being one of the most important causes in her life. And in your final t- uh, t- years in the General Assembly, you were able to work with Republican colleagues to pass finally a bill that addresses the disparities in mental health care in Georgia. It isn't, the work isn't complete. We all know that. But you all took a gigantic step. And I can't help but think that Rosalind Carter would have been very, very, she was alive. I don't know to what extent she was able to follow the General Assembly, but it would warm her heart to know that finally the state of Georgia was addressing such an important issue. She built the runway on the plane which we landed. I'll put it to you that way. She built that runway. Uh, this, you know, a couple of years ago, when we started the mental health legislation in, under the late uh, David Ralston, Speaker Ralston, uh, and many others. Uh, but but she built that runway that we landed the plane on. In other words, she, she should get a lot for that because she laid the groundwork. And, 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 and I commend the, the General Assembly for, for taking that uh, baton and that mantle and uh, and and um, doing what we did in mental health, but but I agree with you one hundred percent. She uh, she 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 talked about it at, at a point in time in our history when it was not uh, being dealt with appropriately by the policymakers. Kelvin Smyre, we're going to move into a conversation after the break about redistricting, and I know that particularly in your new role appointed by President Biden as representative of the United States to the General Assembly of the UN, this is not a subject that right now you want to get engaged in politically, so I'm going to thank you so much for being with us. By the way, thank you for listening to our show, and you know there are many times we'd love to invite you back on Politically Georgia. Calvin, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. If I could say one last thing, um, there's no thing that I have that uh, in life, uh, you make your living by what you get, but you make your life by what you give. <laughs> Rosalind Carter made her life by giving, and for that, we're, we're all thankful for her life. Calvin, stop making me feel so emotional. We have a show to get through today. Calvin Smyrie, thanks for being with us. We're going to get to our first break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the maps that are now available, the new Senate map and the new House map, uh, with two people who have a great deal to say about redistricting in Georgia. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Every morning delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia Morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news insights and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Adam Van Brimmer, housed under our new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at ajc.com newsletters. Tia, we're going to turn now to the special session of the General Assembly, which of course began this morning, gaveled into session at 10 o'clock this morning. The legislature has been ordered by federal judge Steve Jones to draw new uh, legislative maps, Senate and House maps, as well as congressional maps that provide more representation, uh, appropriate representation for black voters in uh, the state. And we're going to get into that in a lot more depth with uh, two uh, guests today. One of them, we just heard his name, Brian Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for the promo there. <laughs> one, of, one of the participants, one of the stars of Political Breakfast here on WABE Radio. Brian, a longtime Republican political insider consultant. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being here. And we're joined by our good friend, Anthony Michael Kreiss, constitutional law professor at Georgia State University. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, you bet. All right. So if, if we can, yesterday we talked a bit about the Senate map, um, which um, some people think is going to be a little bit problematic. We can talk about that in a minute. But Tia, the newer news is that the House map uh, put together, of course, by Republican leadership, has now been released. And um, in many ways, it does comply with Judge Jones' order, but it takes eight legislators, puts them in the same district with colleagues from their own party. Six of them are Democrats, two are Republicans. There will be two new majority black districts created in South Metro Atlanta, another in Douglas County, another in Macon, and a fifth in areas from Macon to Milledgeville. Um, so in many ways, Tia, that map seems to have more likelihood of complying with the uh, judge's order, but it also pits some incumbents against each other. Right. And that's to be expected. And I think the only, like, most regular folks aren't that concerned with whether incumbents have to run against each other. I think most folks would probably, quite frankly, be surprised how much of redistricting factors in where incumbents live as new maps are being drawn. It's a big driving factor um, of new maps when I think most people, again, don't really don't really know how how much how much that goes into play. It's probably not the best way to make new maps, but we get it. It's politics. Um, but I really want to hear from Brian 
and Anthony about whether what your perspectives are, particularly well on both maps, because it appears to me that a lot of what these proposals do, and we know these are maps from the Republicans, um, what the maps do is they take existing Democratic districts and make them more put more black voters, quite frankly, in existing Democratic districts so that the balance of partisan power doesn't really change. It's just there may be more black Democrats, quite frankly, at the expense of white or other non-black Democrats. Is that what that's what I feel is the main takeaway? Um, I know, Brian, I guess we'll start with you. Do you agree with that? And do you think that can can be deemed compliant with what the judge has asked? The judge nor the Voting Rights Act demand Democratic districts be drawn, right? They demand that black people get a chance to vote for a candidate of choice. And that is what the General Assembly is serving up here. I said this when the, when the decision came out. Democrats were celebrating it. And I, and I said, look, guys, I, I, I get it. Y'all won the court case, but you're not going to get out of this what you think you're going to get. This doesn't mean two new state Senate. Democratic districts, five new Democratic districts in the House, which would really in the House clamp down on the Republican majority and make it even more razor thin. Republicans have the right to draw the maps and have a partisan interest in how they do it. Now, it's not just the Georgia Republicans. This is every legislature in the country that does this, Republican and Democrat alike, and that is perfectly constitutional. I will say, though, Tia, there is some blood on the floor for Republicans, too. As Bill mentioned, two of those paired members are Republicans on the south side, uh, based out of you know Griffin and around that area. And, and then Ken Vance, who has that district between Milledgeville and Macon. He's a Republican. That's now a majority black district. Going to be an uphill climb there if you go by history to win that seat. Not that it's impossible. Gerald Green, a Republican from deep southwest Georgia, represents a majority black district. So it is possible. It just doesn't happen very often. So, Anthony, I think Tia made a really important point. She said um, she doesn't know that people who are just sort of casual observers of the process have that much interest in redistricting. Um in in a in a very specific way, like who's paired against who in what given district. Um, so I think the broader question I would ask you is, we'll be talking about this a lot in the week or so ahead as the legislature looks at these maps. What is it that we should be most concerned about for the public in terms of what it means to redraw these maps? Well, I mean, I think I think there's two different values that are at stake here, right? One is, um, you know, kind of descriptive representation, which means do people get to are people able to vote for people who look and think and feel like them um, versus substantive representation, which is right. Are, you know, does the body, the policymaking body of the General Assembly, does the Senate, does the House um, kind of proportionally reflect um, the will of the public? Um these maps all meet the descriptive um, requirements, right? They all enhance descriptive representation in the sense that they provide more opportunities for black Georgians to vote for candidates of their choice. Uh, the House map does increase substantive uh, representation to the extent that there will be more opportunities for Democrats. Um, but at the same time, 
a lot of the complaints that you, I think you'll hear people make about the House maps or even the Senate maps isn't so much about the Voting Rights Act. It's the fact that people dislike, as a general matter, incumbency protection or really what people are complaining about um, is 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 political partisan gerrymandering, right? Which is which is entirely permissible under federal constitutional law and is not really implicated in a direct way by the Voting Rights Act. And so I think there will be people who are displeased, but they're, they will be displeased, right, for the wrong reasons, right? The, the reason for this session of the General Assembly is to remedy the violations of the Voting Rights Act. It is not to to kind of be, uh, you know, an, an, an overarching panacea for other people's, you know, other complaints about the political process or the redistricting process. And the final thing I'll note very quickly is I, you know, I think that for state legislators, although, and, you know, I, I love many state legislators and I mean no offense to any of them, um, but people don't generally have the same kind of allegiance to state legislators that they might say have to their senator or to their member of Congress. Um, so so I, I think this incumbency aspect, right, where people, incumbents will be pitted against each other, um, certainly will cause a, a storm in terms of political conversations in Georgia among those who follow state politics very closely. But I'm not sure the average voter is going to be outraged or particularly concerned about incumbents being pitted against each other after these lines have been re, uh, redrawn. Now, I totally agree with that. I think what voters will often respond to is the eye test more than anything else. You know, for those of us who've been around for a long time, the 2001 maps, the last ones drawn by uh, the Democrats, when they had the majority, failed the eye test. They had two state Senate districts. One started in Augusta, one started in Columbus, and they met in the middle of the state. You know, that's just one example of the out outrageous stuff that they did. And voters rebelled against that. I think these maps are going to pass that that eye test. And the bigger picture, and maybe this is a topic for a different day, so I won't delve into it, is when are we going to be at a place where we don't need the Voting Rights Act telling us uh, how to draw districts based on people's skin color? We have Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate. There's no way he got there without a lot of white people votes. The entire VRA is based on the premise that white people won't vote for black people or take extraordinary efforts to keep them from holding office. That's obviously not a reflection of modern day Georgia. It may be time to take a look at how applicable this is to what's happening here in our state. I, I mean, I want to challenge that a little. You know, I like to challenge you, Brian. <laughs> on, the, That's on the Voting it's Rights Act, I, I, I agree that perhaps Warnock is a testament, you know, same thing with Barack Obama, that you can be a black person and win with a coalition that includes white people. But I also think that the fact that the Supreme Court has upheld challenges to maps in multiple states, Louisiana... Well, Louisiana might not have gone to the Supreme Court yet, but Alabama did. I mean, the fact that Alabama, a state with 50 percent black population, has one majority black congressional district, I think on its face is kind of symbolic or indicative of why people believe the Voting Rights Act is still needed because the map makers aren't necessarily drawing fair maps. So not so much about voters and what voters may or may not be able to do at the polls, but whether map makers in Georgia and other places are drawing maps that truly reflect the makeup of their state or municipality. Yeah, I, I Anthony and then Brian will give you a chance to respond. But Anthony, 
I feel in a way like Brian has this turned around the wrong way. This isn't a, <laughs> this isn't a question of whether white voters are willing to elect black candidates. This is about whether black voters are given fair opportunity to elect whomever they want, be it white people or black people. We're talking about black voters being in many ways disenfranchised by district lines that don't give them uh, the opportunities that they, as a percentage of the population, uh, deserve. Is that a fair way of putting it? And then, Brian, you're more than welcome to jump back in. Maybe everybody's a little wrong here. I, I mean, so that, now, I am right. right. I, you will find that I am right. <laughs> so, so I, I think the right, here's the key it, with the Voting Rights Act in particular. It's not that states have to have to create districts, whether they be federal congressional districts or for for right, state legislatures, that they have to create majority black districts. What they have to do is create opportunities mm. for a coalition of majority uh, of voters, um, both black voters and not, you know, white voters or non-black voters to to forge a coalition that black voters in particular can achieve outcomes that are uh, to their their preference. So, so it, you know, they're they're both of these things are relevant. The big difference, right, where I would disagree with Brian is, you know, yes, Raphael Warnock won, but he won with a coalition from across the state in a way, right? You can't manipulate manipulate state lines, right, to kind of exclude people from Senate races. Um, although, you know, Dade County may or may not be part of Georgia. We can discuss that later. But, um, you know, the, the the but when you're drawing these congressional districts or these state legislative uh, uh, lines, you know, you, you can do so in a way to manipulate, um, right, the, the demographics to benefit people on a partisan basis. Why that's really important or what's really kind of, uh, I think, difficult in this conversation is that there, you know, racial polarization and partisan voting is so, uh, you know, they're so much aligned. And so, you know, what counts as partisan you know, gerrymandering versus what is racial, uh, you know, racially motivated gerrymandering is a very difficult question. And the one quick thing I would say about, you know, and I think Brian was right about Democrats and liberals being a little too eager sometimes about these cases is, you know, there was this whole issue in the 90s of building majority minority districts, um, in which case, Black voters were often packed into these really cramped districts, which allowed suburban white voters to kind of vote freely uh, for Republicans, which would enhance, you know, which could potentially enhance uh, Republican voting power and voting share um, on the whole. And so, you know, these things are really a very delicate balance that if you go too far in one direction, it might hurt that substantive representation that black voters truly want and Democrats want um, in terms of uh, creating um, you know, broader coalitions, um, you know, even though it might enhance the, you know, the, the, the descriptive representation. So there's always a trade-off to all these things. But I, I, I think at the end of the day, what we need to have is a law or have laws that are mindful of this, of these dynamics, and that allow federal courts to look at evidence and to ensure that people are not being discriminated against or their votes diluted just because of their, their race. All right, Brian, you've been very patient. Go I ahead. love this. I mean, I am a pot stirrer, am I not? Look you at what I've done. Always have been. <laughs> yes. So the examples that Tia mentioned, I I don't disagree with her. And the thing I would point out about those examples is they're not in Georgia. We talked about Warnock, who's not in a district. Obviously, you can't gerrymander him. But Lucy McBath, before the last redraw, 
she got elected to a district that was 58 percent white and she was winning by fairly wide margins by the end of it. So the point that I'm making is that we have had a sea change in Georgia and that old McBath district, that is the old suburban Republican home that where the Republicans in Georgia got started. It was that district. And you begin to see a movement away from the party in those areas. And that's the point I'm making. You know, Justice John Roberts, who many left of center Americans actually respect because he's been fair and sort of uh, centrist on some major issues of the day, including some of the Obamacare cases. He said, you know, when are we going to end this sordid practice of divvying us up by race? And to Tia's point, maybe not every part of America is at that point of enlightenment. But I think Georgia is really getting close to it if it's not there already. Tia? I'll I'll let him have that. I mean, I definitely I'm I my colleagues, Mark, Maya, others are much more experts, but I do think we've noticed noted the diversity in Georgia's General Assembly with Georgia's congressional delegation. So I, I don't disagree with Brian there that Georgia's done better better probably compared to other states in the deep south. I think um most people though you know, when you think about Lucy McBath's district and Carolyn Bordeaux's district as she was elected in 2020, these were districts that had changed over time, that had gone from being conservative to toss ups. And then they elected Democrats in 2020. And guess what happened after that? One district got packed with a bunch of black and brown folks and the other district was made very conservative where it would be hard for a Democrat to win. And 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 I think, Brian, again, not disagreeing with anything you said, but just for our listeners, this is all about and this is kind of back to Anthony's point, the choices that are made when it comes time to draw the maps. And so. The Again, we're talking about Republicans right now because Republicans are in control, but clearly a choice was made to protect Republicans in one congressional seat and make it hard for a person, quite frankly, make it hard for Carolyn Bordeaux to keep the other seat. And that's that's just the truth of the matter. We should point out that we're not going to see a congressional map until later this week. Um, so that'll be fascinating to see how, whether or not, in that case, uh, the, uh, the the legislature does comply with uh, Judge Jones' uh, ruling that they create one additional black district in the western uh, part of Georgia. So we'll watch that as it unfolds. Maybe we'll see that map tomorrow sometime. Uh, certainly by Friday, uh, we'll we'll. Have it, but but I want to go to a different aspect of this for just a couple of minutes. Uh, and else, Brian, uh, because you're you you know the Capitol well, you're down there a lot. There there are ways in which redistricting can punish or reward individual members, and I do think that is something that people who are not political junkies like we all are might be have some interest in. So, for instance, um, in the new maps in the House, there are two Democrats who have, are potentially rising stars in, in, for, in state politics on the House side. One of them, Representative uh, Sam Park, out in Lawrenceville, uh, is getting will now have a, ch- a challenger uh, um, uh, uh, who is also an incumbent. And Syra Draper, who's a voting rights expert, 
um, uh, who holds Stacey Abrams' former seat, also uh, lumped in with uh, another uh, Democrat. And, and, and it does feel that, by the way, a third, Terry Anulowitz from Smyrna. Um, so, Gre- I, mean, I mean, Brian and, and then Anthony, there are ways in which district lines can be drawn to punish or reward members, to take an advantage or disadvantage away from the people you don't want to move up in the ladder. Brian? I don't think that's what's happening here. Now, I do know of examples of this, Bill. When Governor Deal was governor and we redrew in 2012, there was definitely a Republican member from Southeast Georgia that Speaker (laughs) Ralston wanted to see gone, and he got gone because there was no longer a place that would elect him after Ralston was done. So that does happen. I don't think that there's animus toward Terry Anulowitz, who was texting me this morning as we were doing political breakfast live on WABE uh, with some of her thoughts on how this played out. But the DeKalb and Gwinnett districts, they were always going to be a center of attention in this case. You know, there's no way to avoid it. If there was a way to avoid it, we wouldn't have paired two Republicans on the south side of Atlanta together. You know, this is an example of saying, "Okay, guys, make an omelet, but no egg should be broken in this process. Right. That is exactly what's being asked of them when you say don't pair anybody together. I don't think there's anything against Sam Park or the other Democrat in that district or Becky Evans. I really don't. Those areas they represent were always going to be a target because of what the General Assembly had to do to meet the order issued by Judge Jones. And I believe that they've done it. There, is there blood on the floor? Yes. Will there be blood on the floor when the congressional map comes out? I don't see how they avoid it, given what Judge Jones has ordered up. Uh, but that's what it is. It is apply. It is con- complying with what jo- Jones wants. Anthony and then Tia. Yeah, I, I think um, that, you know, some of the, the ways in which we have to draw districts in these very heavily populated areas, um, you know, people are crammed. Um, and, and so these... You know, I, I don't I don't think that there are, there's a whole about bunch of animus out there for uh, Terry or Sam or any of these folks. It's just, you know, kind of the way it's going to be. But of course, I think the other thing, too, of course, is that these are not final maps. They, there's tweaking that can be involved and maybe some, you know, reconsideration, um, you know, but but I think at least for the House map in particular, um, you know, what this really shows is a good I think I think a very good faith effort. On, on the part of, of Republicans in the General Assembly to comply with the Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Act requirements as as mandated by Judge Jones. Um, I think the Senate map is a little bit more difficult, but right there, right, you have another example of perhaps a more faithful or, or, or you know, a better, more robust map that protects the, the, you know, the interests of black voters in the Senate might very well pit some um, incumbents against one another. So, um, you know, I, I think that's it's it's really hard to say what's motivating things. It's hard to say what will ultimately pan out. But but I, I suspect that this is really about getting this done quickly and getting in a way done quickly that doesn't up, you know upend the balance of power in, in either chamber. Tia, we got to get to a break. Before we do, let's point out and you could get the final word that when Speaker John Burns was on our show talking about Judge Jones order, he said he believed that the House would draw apps that would please Judge Jones. And Anthony is suggesting that that may very well be what they're doing in the House, at least. I definitely think it's notable that Anthony seems to like the maps. Um, And I think, um, 
you know, you're you're deemed a more progressive analyst of uh of politics. <laughs> so the fact that you um, are OK with the maps, maybe like is too strong. I just want to say that at the end of the day, some of these districts are being drawn more again. I guess I worry about losing good people. I don't want to name any names, losing good people and replacing them with people who are more partisan, um, less experienced. And um, that is an offshoot of any redistricting. But I think that's something to think about. All right. Tia Mitchell gets the last word in this segment of Politically Georgia. We got to get to our final break. We have some really good subjects to talk about when we come back. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Anthony, I want to start with you on this, and Tia, you should jump in in a moment here. Um, so we learned the other day by from our colleague Dave Wickert at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Steve Sado, who's representing uh, Donald Trump in the uh, criminal conspiracy case here in Fulton County, that he plans to use a First Amendment freedom of speech defense uh, saying that Donald Trump had every right under the Constitution to um, uh, argue that the election was rigged. Now, Scott McAfee, who's hearing the case, has already dismissed the First Amendment challenges that were brought by Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell. Anthony, the question becomes, how do you draw the line between speech and conspiracy to overturn an election illegally. So I Donald Trump has a very good team here in Georgia with Steve Sadow. Um, and so I think this motion is reflective of an attempt to throw everything they can um, to attempt to block Fannie Willis from prosecuting Donald Trump. But you know, here, here's the, the key. Donald Trump had every right under the First Amendment to speak out every day and claim that the election was fraudulent, to claim that he won, to claim that something was stolen. Um, you know, that that could not be prosecuted on its own. What Donald Trump does not have the right to do is to initiate conduct um, that is fraudulent in nature or to induce government officials to do something illegal. Um, you're right. The 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 theory that Sadow is essentially suggesting is that a person could walk into a bank, um, say, stick them up. I'm going to rob you. Um, and but by the way, I think the money's legitimately mine. 
not get the money and just walk out and then not be culpable for an attempted robbery. That's not how the law works. Um, you know, there, there, there is a big question, I think, about intent. You know, what was Donald Trump's intent? What did he know? When did he know it? How, you know, what was he attempting to get from Brad Raffensperger or these different members of the General Assembly and the, and the like? You know, those are things that will be litigated in terms of showing criminal intent. But ultimately, if those things are proven, if it is proven that Donald Trump had a corrupt unlawful attempt to secure power for himself, and that's why he was making the demands he was making, then those are not covered by the First Amendment. Um, you know, under this theory, you know, people would be able to go out in the streets and do pretty much whatever they want, um, you know, with impunity, uh, if the First Amendment covered the kinds of things that the theory that they're proffering, um, would, you know, covers. So I also wanted to ask about this whole theory of First Amendment for Donald Trump. At what point, because I thought it was interesting, Anthony, you just said he can say the actions is, are what's problematic, not necessarily his claims. But I feel like some of the um, criticism in some of the court cases have said it's problematic that he continued to make the same claims of a stolen election, even after there was evidence, much evidence saying that's not the case. So our, so I guess my question for you is, is that is is there no limitation? Because to me, I feel like that's an argument that has been made in court that at some point you can't keep <laughs> saying a thing that you know to not be true. Well, if Donald Trump had been told you know, at point, you know, somewhere between point A and point B of a lie, um, that the thing he was saying was untrue, but continued to profess these lies anyway. That's not criminal on its own. What what the what what this kind of dynamic is is important is for uh, de determining intent, right? So what when Donald Trump called Brad Raffensperger, what was his intent? Was he attempting to ask for a good faith recounting of votes or was he attempting to strong arm the secretary of state into doing something unlawful, which he knew he had no right to ask for? Um, and so the, the you know, in any kind of criminal prosecution, there's always going to be speech that's attendant to the claim of what was unlawful. Um, right. It's, it's very rare that you're not going to have some speech involved. The question is, is this, does the speech speak to criminal mindset, criminal intent, uh, motive, or is the speech being criminalized on its own? And, and that, that second part is not true in Fulton County. Donald Trump, nobody's being punished for speaking out alone. They're being punished or attempting to be punished for engaging in conduct to which the speech that they had engaged in um, illuminates what their motives were and it illuminates whether they were acting in good faith or whether they were acting corruptly. So, Brian, let me move this beyond the uh, legal aspect of the case. Steve Sato, as Anthony points out, is a very, very talented defense attorney. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch how he argues his case in front of Judge McAfee. But let's move it into the political realm. Brian, you have not been a particularly strong advocate of Donald Trump. Um, how, as you look at the upcoming trials and the fact that Trump continues to have a, a grip on the party, how troubled are you by the fact that Republicans don't seem, you as a more mainstream Republican, don't seem to be able to free themselves from him? 
You know, it's an interesting needle that I thread being both provocative and mainstream all at the same time, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, <laughs> my thing with uh, with Donald Trump and a lot of these legal cases is I don't think politically they really matter all of that much. Yes, we are seeing polling saying I support Donald Trump, but if he gets convicted, I'm, I'm less likely to vote for him. I don't think that's true. Everyone knows what the facts are. We're not waiting for <laughs> for the discovery to come out. And, oh, he did what? <laughs> yeah, we all know what he's done. And we already have an opinion on whether or not it was criminal, whether or not it was acceptable, whether or not it was good or bad. So I don't think whether a jury that we don't know of 12 people decides guilty or not guilty is going to impact the voters decision. But let me dig in there for you, Bill. I am a Georgian first. And I'm someone who makes my living to some degree in Georgia politics and have for 25 years. I worry that Trump's not the best for the party at large in Georgia. We have seen ongoing Republican fundamental strength in this state at a point where many Democrats thought that demographic change would have made this a blue state that is solid. Obviously, Brian Kemp's big win showed that wasn't the case. And I think that Nikki Haley, for example, just throw out one name, if she was the nominee, I think that would have down ballot positive impacts for Republicans in Georgia. I am worried about the down ballot impact of Trump. All right. Um, and that leads us to, to a conversation that you had just recently with Austin Scott, uh, uh, Congressman Austin Scott, because one of the questions you asked him was whether or not he was ready to make an endorsement, especially of Donald Trump, right? Just uh, tell us a couple seconds about that question, and then we'll play his response. Yeah, and this was before um, Buddy Carter's endorsement, but, you know, we knew that Republicans have been weighing in, but mainstream Republicans, back to that word, Brian, most mainstream Republicans are staying out of the race, although most say if Trump is the nominee, which all signs point to that being the case, they will endorse him. So I decided to I talked to Rep. Scott right before the Thanksgiving break. Here's what he said. I do not plan on endorsing in the primary. I, I will tell you, I think it's down to a. Th I thought it was a three person race for a long time. I, th I think it's very clear that it's down to a three person race right now with, uh, you know, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. And so whichever one of them wins the primary, I absolutely intend to endorse them as a Republican. Um, interesting comment. And uh, we already have it, uh, uh, Governor Kemp. Uh, Brian Robinson telling us that he's not a fan of Donald Trump's, but if he's a nominee, he'll vote for him. And, and look, this should surprise no one. Uh, those are two respected voices here in Georgia, people who have whose feet have been put to the fire on tough issues and have stood up and done the right thing. We've seen that from Austin Scott picking up the mantle, running for speaker when he, a bunch of nonsense was going on up there. And we saw it from Brian Kemp when he stood up to the election fraud claims at a point where it looked like that was political suicide to do what he was doing. These are trusted leaders. And but look, they still have bases to maintain. There is no there is no lane for the guy who's a Republican who's against the Republican nominee for president running against Joe Biden. That lane does not exist. So they are doing what politically they should and must do. 
All right, Brian Robinson, uh, you get the last word in the show. Uh, Tia, you have other sound with Austin Scott. We don't have time for it today, but we will bring it into the show in the next couple of days because it's always interesting to hear what Congressman Scott has to say. So, Tia Mitchell, Brian Robinson, Anthony Michael Christ, thank you for a really lively conversation on Politically Georgia today. It was a pleasure to uh, be able to talk to all of you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 o'clock each afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.